Welcome to What Didn't Kill You, where we explore personal and professional stories of adaptation in the face of adversity and the causal relationship between pain and growth. I'm your host, Michael Silverman. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and student of life that is fascinated by how professional missteps, adverse life circumstances, and pain are harnessed by people and organizations to inform future triumphs and bring deeper meaning to their life and work. Join me as we explore the mindsets, philosophies, and narratives of those who embody Friedrich Nietzsche's timeless aphorism, what does not kill me makes me stronger. Adam, uh, thank you again for uh, agreeing to uh, come back for part two here. Uh, really enjoyed the first round of uh, our discussion. And, you know, one of the things that, that really struck me, and, and we've touched on this before in, in some of our conversations, but uh, just a lot of commonalities between the two of us, yeah. you know, both have direct ancestors who survived the Holocaust, who came to this country, both of our families kind of came from some degree to the, from the entertainment business. Yeah. You know, my, my grandfather was uh, one of those young Jewish guys that, uh, that kind of contributed to the creation of Hollywood and was in production. And, you know, we... Um, that's where my dad got into the business world and got into mm. television as well. So just as we were talking yesterday, there are so many commonalities. And one of the things that you mentioned that really struck a note with, with me, and I, I'd be curious to dive deeper on, is you said that growing up, you were exposed to some of these folks, and it showed you what was possible in the, mm-hmm. in the world. And I think that's a, a really powerful idea. And it's something that I'm grateful to have had a certain amount of exposure to that as well. And I enjoy talking about that topic with folks that that have the same thing, whether it's uh, you know parents or, or family members that have either some level of success or are very good at what they do. And it could be in business, it could be in the military, it could be you know a, a wide variety of different things. But it's this this recurring notion I think quite often is this: oh well, you saw what was possible, you saw what to strive for. I've also found though that there can be a bit of a two edged sword there. So, mm-hmm. you know, on one hand, yes, you see what's possible. On the other hand, it might change the criteria by which you judge yourself. Yeah. I'm curious, in your drive, in your entrepreneurial journey, you achieved a tremendous amount by the time you were 28 years old in, in kind of your, your more conventional career and then started to, to switch gears a little bit. How much of that do you think played a role? How much of it was holding yourself to, to a certain set of standards? And was there, you know... Towards the end of that conversation or that um, that discussion of IMM, you mentioned really having to do a lot of introspection and, and think about mm-hmm. you know who you were in, in leading that organization. Was there a sense of finding the real Adam in that, and was there a sense of learning your own criteria for success versus what you might have thought early on uh, was the definition? Yeah, I think it's a great question, Michael, and. I do feel like I've always felt like we've had a lot in common, kind of shared shared journey, and <laughs> even including our connection to uh, uh, to the Monterey Bay area, exactly, and, and Carmel, right? And where I have a surfboard sitting in my aunt's garage that's gathering dust at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Need to get out there and dust it off. Absolutely. But yeah, I think it's a great question, and I'll I'll try to answer it as succinctly as possible in kind of three parts. So. You know, in that transition from my late 20s, from corporate world to entrepreneurial world, I think that the gift of my heritage and and the things that I was exposed to as a, as a young person and being, you know, and seeing what's possible gave me the ability to switch from something that was very secure 
to something that was very risky without a lot of soul searching, without a lot of analysis paralysis, right? I felt like, you know, like I really embodied the spirit of anything is possible and that I can carry self-reliance with me because I've seen what survival means and prospering means, you know, and so that was probably, you know, one thing that that played a role for sure. And then I think, you know, what I realized is that when I, and this was part of the soul searching you were referring to, when I got to a point to a level of success in the businesses that have really contributed to our, you know, my overall success in, in the middle part of my career, uh, you know, IMM and Boulder Heavy Industries and some of these other, other businesses that I'm involved in, um, you know, what I realized when, when I got to a certain point and, you know, stubbed my toe, so to speak, and, and, you know, that the segment we were talking about last night where it took me longer than was healthy to acknowledge a failure and to learn from those and to learn from that failure and mature and begin to look inwards and say what I needed to do. I think it was at that point that I realized that, you know, there I was in my mid late forties. And, but if I was really honest with myself, I was living a set of expectations and a set of objectives that had been defined by 28 year old Adam, right? Not 45 year old Adam, soon to be 50 year old Adam. And that unless I created some space to truly have a conversation with myself around what I wanted next. And the hard part was, is that because, you know, if IMM had been a total failure at that, at that juncture and we hadn't pivoted and we hadn't created Boulder Heavy Industries and hadn't launched these other businesses and diversified and continued to grow after stumbling, you know, that may, that, you know, the universe might have just presented its own opportunity, you know, to take a break, right? And to say, and I think you can relate to this because you're still involved in a business that, right, that at least that's my outward perception that's still in that stage where, Absolutely. you know, it's not like it's all over and all you have left is you and looking at yourself in a mirror saying, okay, well, what did I learn and what do I do next? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> or, you know, you're still kind of in it. And I think that's what, that, that's what happened to me. And so, you know, normally you would have that gap to, for self-reflection and saying, okay, well, I'm 40 or I'm 30 or whatever stage in life I'm at, you know, what did I learn? You know, who am I right now? How have I changed? And how have my values changed, right? That's why, like, you see people in relationships often who do the work after they end a, a relationship, a marriage or whatever, and they really do the work on themselves. You know, the, oftentimes the next relationship that they're in, this is my perception, is a better fit for them, right? Uh, if not, That's not true of everyone. Sometimes people just go on and on and on, you know, in relationships sure. don't work. But, <laughs> and that's true in businesses as it is in, in personal life. But I think... For a lot of people, they, they do that work and they and they say, who am I now? And then they find something, whether it's work or, or, or personal life, that's more aligned with, with who they are. And But my challenge was that I never really had that gap. And so I had to wake up and realize, you know, in my mid-40s that I was still living kind of someone else's life, someone else's set of expectations, and that I was never going to feel completely aligned and probably never achieve the level of success or satisfaction that I wanted for that stage in my life until I said, what is it that I really want? Who am I? And what is the intersection between who am I and what do I want in terms of my work and my daily life? And, you know, I think it's cliche to say you're the only person that can do that for yourself, right? Sure. But most people end up getting the benefit of circumstance. Their business ends. They, it either fail, fails or it succeeds. They sell it and they, and they exit, right? Or they get divorced or they become an empty nester or, you know, whatever the major life is. The stimulus. Right. Is right. It happens. And so, but for me, I had to, I had to dig deep, right. And have that conversation with myself because otherwise, 
it wasn't going to happen. And I was going to, and I felt myself continuing to, you know, starting to feel like I was trapped. Sure. That makes sense. But there, there's that sense of needing to challenge yourself or, you know, previous guests on the show, uh, Bob Kavner talked about the the self-trauma, right? Where, Mm. you know, those traumatic instances you talked about business ending, a divorce happening, a relationship ending, what have you, you know, those are traumatic experiences to a degree that can be a catalyst for this type of reflection. But you can also create a dynamic where you don't have to wait for those things to happen. You can proactively do them, but figuring out how to do that can be very challenging. That's the hardest thing to do. I mean, it's, and it's not just self-discipline, it's also self-awareness, right? And if you're a busy business person, more often than not, the pace of your life, you know, personal, family, you know, a business doesn't create that, you know, that, that, uh, that space, right? So it's one of the hardest things I found. It's one of the hardest things to do. And for me, you know, as I said before, you know, the things that started to come up were, you know, that I wasn't happy. I wasn't feeling fulfilled. I was feeling obligated, not motivated. I, you know, my, it started to reflect in my health, you know, high blood pressure or weight gain or all of those things. And so, you know, just like as entrepreneurs, we're constantly thinking about, okay, well, what's ahead? Do I have to pivot? How am I going to raise my next round? Am I going to have a business, you know, model that works, you know, in, in the next quarter or two or, or three? I don't know if I was doing that enough for myself. And what I've learned is that that's where it has to start, right? Again, just like, just like a family in some ways, if the parents aren't happy, the children are going to feel and possibly even reflect that unhappiness. And I think it's true with leadership too, especially entrepreneurial leadership. You know, if we're not energized as entrepreneurial leaders by the work that we're doing, then our businesses are going to reflect that too. Sure. Um, it makes a lot of sense. And you you mentioned that, you know, trying to reinvent yourself, trying to pursue that that sense of fulfillment. One of the the things that keeps popping up throughout their your timeline, so to speak, is this this passion around content creation, um, writing. And I know we touched on it briefly previously, but I know that even though you put your your writing on pause to go launch IMM, you were able to come back to that passion of yours. Can you talk a little bit about how that happened and and what that dynamic of sort of flirting with this passion and, and pulling back and then eventually being able to get to it in a satisfying way has been like? Yeah, I think it ultimately has been satisfying. Um, and, you know, like any startup or, or any, any new process, you know, there've been a lot of twists and turns and moments of excitement and moments of disappointment. But, you know, I had a lot of, like I said, a lot of friends and family who had been in that business and they all knew because, you know, I wouldn't shut up about it, that there was, it was an interest and a passion for me and they kind of knew my journey. And so about three years ago, I began having conversations with a group of folks that I had gotten to know over the years in, in the industry. And, uh, and they were, uh, they weren't just producers, they were financiers and they weren't just equity financiers. They were involved in the, in the debt financing of a film. And so what ended up happening is that I was able to alongside them create a, a business model, and it's not a brand new business model. It just happens to be our version of one that's already pretty well established, which by the way, is always a good thing to do, right? Is, is, to, <laughs> yeah. is to approve on an existing business model for yep. any entrepreneur that's listening. <laughs> <laughs> I have a great, I have a great friend who's an extremely successful entrepreneur who 
built a business that was just acquired by a public company for you know uh, billions of dollars, literally. And he said, I've always been a big believer in R&D. And I'm, you know, I'm like, what do you mean? He said, rob and duplicate. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, uh, so that's anyways, great. So it was a little bit of R&D that went into this business, so to speak. And so what we ended up creating was a business model that allowed me to leverage a number of things that didn't require an incredibly steep learning curve, right? There was no way that I was going to you know, teleport myself into this industry with magically with you know, Malcolm Gladwell's proverbial 10,000 hours of experience, right? There was no sure. way that I was going to become a screenwriter or a director or someone truly on the creative side that had the, the skills and experience and confidence sufficient for someone like me to be willing to invest in their film, right? So that's the litmus test. Would I back my own film? Oh, probably not, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but what we developed was a model that, that, gave, that gave me the ability to engage creatively with content creators and, and really begin a process of learning and discovery, you know, reading scripts, giving notes. And, it, and what we evolved was a, a film finance fund that you know, through a partnership with a number, uh, we brought together a group of people that had complementary skills, right? So I brought I brought capital and and media experience, media distribution, digital media experience. Another attorney who had built a a, a private debt fund and had uh, closed on you know three hundred private financings of of uh, of independent film, and then a studio executive who had bought and distributed, bought and sold thousands of, uh, of independent films for, uh, for Sony and Lionsgate and, and Focus and other businesses. And uh, we created a fund that loans money against a senior secured interest in the pre-sold guaranteed distribution contracts and certified tax credits of independent production. So when you make a film or you're going to make a film in, in a number of states or countries, um, often as an economic incentive, those countries will issue you tax credits against a certain percentage of the economic activity that you generate in the course of that production in that state or in that country. And those certifications are bankable, right? Because there are state contracts that, are, that can be escrowed and, and the funds can be obtained through collection management accounts and things like that. The same thing for guaranteed distribution contracts. If you have a, a film that you packaged and you go to a major distributor, that distributor will issue a guaranteed contract with a deposit that is considered bankable, right? Not unlike the way that charities often can bond the construction of charitable projects, you know, uh, schools, churches, things like that, against the pledges that have been made by their donors. And except this is a little bit more restricted, right? And there was an industry that already existed, and but it's it's a you know it's like private equity or even real estate development where there's a lot of diligence, specialized diligence that goes into it. You not sure. only have to understand the business side and the finance side of things and the legal side of things, but you have to understand the creative side of things because even though there are completion bonds and insurance to guarantee that if a star you know gets sick or dies or quits, you know that the film can be completed, you still have to diligence whether the creative team and the script are actually going to deliver something that's that's uh, a minimum viable product. Right. Just like a real like just like a bank would want to make sure that a real estate developer knows how to bring a building out of the ground and, and sell it. And so we put together a, a fund that did that where, you know, it enabled me to begin getting involved in the industry in a way that didn't require me to jump in with both feet because I couldn't, you know, I'm involved. I have a day job. Right. Sure. But also began to give me exposure to something that I'm passionate about where I could help be a part of the creative process and realize, realize, you know, the storytelling vision that I had. 
And so that's what we've been doing for the last few years with increasing degrees of success. Do you think there's a future in which uh, you continue to expand on your creative passions in that department? I think so. I think, you know, that over time, assuming that we continue to be successful and I and continue to learn enough about the business that I could see getting more directly involved in production. Um, you know, for all of your listeners, I would say if anyone asks you to invest equity in an independent film, the answer is no, unless it's your son <laughs> or daughter, uh, and 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 you're basically making a contribution to their future. Yeah. Right? Uh, because you know what the, you know what the uh, the fastest and most effective way to make a small fortune in Hollywood is. I'm guessing start with a large fortune. Start with a large <laughs> one. Exactly. I knew you were going to finish that for me. <laughs> Sounds so, about right. Right. So, yes, I do have an, an interest in getting more directly involved in, in the creative process. And this has been a way in for me to learn the business and learn, learn the fundamentals of, of how, how a film is made, how a film is distributed, and to do it in a way that, that doesn't create excessive risk. And so I hope to put that to good use. But, you know, famous last words, this may be where we end up and what we end up scaling is a, just a larger version of this aspect of the business. But either way, I love being a part of the creative process. And if, and if this is the role that I play in the creative process, then that, that's also great, too. That's terrific. And this is, you know, one of the things that I think is so cool about the evolution of IMM to Boulder Heavy Industries that we talked about a little bit in, in the, the last leg of the conversation is that it enabled you to take a step back and really expand your purview. And as a result you've really become a prolific investor in, in a lot of different companies that mm -hmm. intersect with your passions and your skill sets. How has your experience, how have your experiences evolved your mental model for, you know, evaluating these types of opportunities? Because I would imagine that you see a lot of really, you know, mm -hmm. cool stuff, right? And a lot of really bright people are bringing mm -hmm. it to you. How have you evolved thinking about, you know, is this a deal I want to do or isn't it? Um, you know, it really depends on the type of deal, right? Because there are financial deals. There are purely financial deals where I am a, I'm a passive investor and those, and that could be real estate. It could be commodities. It could be debt, right? Things like that. And those, those types of deals, and, you know, there are probably much better people to ask this question of who have much more experience and, and, uh, and business wisdom around it. Uh, but, you know, my view on those is that it's team, track record, and the underlying value and defensibility of the instrument, right? So those tend to be more academic in their, you know, in, in my analysis beyond just beyond beyond the team that I'm dealing with, right? But it's much more, it's much easier to diligence team and track record, you know, th through, uh, through background and network and, uh, and ev evidence, right? And hard, hard evidence. Sure. Um, and so those tend to be really straightforward for me, but, and that's only just a, a, a one element of my portfolio. Right. And it's, um, and, uh, but I think it's important because, you know, I know a lot of people who, who are really overweight and in execution driven investments versus, versus financial instruments. And I think there's a lot of, of upside and it just makes one a better investor to cultivate. I think, you know, the amount I've learned from learning about debt, and becoming a general partner in a debt fund has really had a positive influence on how I evaluate even venture investments. Mm. So, so I think that cultivating is, you know, cultivating a skill in, in passive investing, in diligence and in passive investing is really beneficial. 
So, because it's much more of a dispassionate kind of approach. It, it cultivates dispassion, which is very healthy in an investor, right? And so that's one segment. And then I think the other, there are two other things that I've learned taken away from being an entrepreneur. One is that it's also cliche, but it really comes down to people, right? And I think I said this maybe even in our prior segment, you know, life is an execution play. And I've seen a number of ideas that I thought were terrible be, become success or, or not even terrible, but just not special, yeah. right? It's not even terrible. It's more that I just didn't think they were that, that interesting or they'd been done before or, you know, it saw, seemed like it wasn't first mover advantage. It was fifth mover advantage or whatever, right? That, and I thought, you know, eh, not for me, but the quality of the people executing them proved me wrong. And I've also seen great ideas. In fact, I, I was involved in one of those back in the day. <laughs> right? Great ideas, poorly executed and failed by people who were either not qualified or not, you know, or the team dynamic wasn't there or they, they just weren't, they weren't the right people. So it failed because of execution, right? That would have otherwise been, you know, been phenomenally successful. So I know it's cliche, but I've spent an increasing amount of time focusing my investment diligence on personality, on how those people are reflected, you know, how people reflect them. So not just me, not just how I feel. I mean, certainly I know a lot of people and I do agree with the statement too. A lot of people have a no assholes policy. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how, you know, how successful you've been. You know, if you are unpleasant or difficult or defensive or unwilling to, to be part of a team, I know a lot of investors that simply will say, well, that deal's not for me because my quality of life will diminish even if my balance sheet will increase in having to deal with them, right? And I think I've learned the hard way in a couple of those deals where you just say, well, I want the money, I want the exposure, I want the upside. And what you get instead, you might get some of that, but what you get instead is anxiety. And at some point in time, you, you ask yourself as an investor, how do I want to spend my time and who do I want to be around? And that's true of anyone, not just investors, right? Yeah operators, all of that. And so, you know, if you don't, you know, if you, if you can avoid being around assholes and even if that's uh, you know, it takes your portfolio performance down incrementally, I think it's a fair trade. Sure. And then I think, you know, I think what I'm about to say is true more for independent investors like me, rather than, rather than uh, fund-based investors. Um, and that is, you know, it's the flip side of the no assholes policy. It's how can I be of service? Right. I think a lot of, of independent investors who, you know, who like me, who enjoy being so-called smart money. Sure. Right. Really enjoy. Like, that's the reason why I joined you at the expo, right? Yeah. And your team, Absolutely. right? It wasn't because I was there trying, you know, diligencing, you know, you guys and making sure that, you know, you weren't, you weren't taking the money to Disneyland. and, and uh, <laughs> Which is right next door. <laughs> which is right next door, right? You know, it was more because... I wanted to learn and be exposed to what you were doing and be a part of it, right? And of course, contribute where I could. And so I think a lot of independent investors often, and you know, this is a positive and a negative, right? And this is probably the hardest part. You know, a lot of people say, well, it's hard to say no. You have to teach yourself to say no, you know, because it's human nature not to want to disappoint someone. And, you know, because we're all on some level empathetic and no one wants to feel someone else's disappointment, right? Sure. But all of those, I think, you know, once you get past all of those things and you never completely get past them, you always have to be self-aware enough to understand when you're starting to feel that, that impulse, you know, oh, I don't want to say no, but I really should. Yeah. And, but in between there, there are always going to be those moments of saying, you know, boy, I could really help this person and I would enjoy the process and I would get something out of it and they would get something out of it. 
and together, you know, I can help them be successful. And so I think there's always that calculus that goes on. Uh, and I think that's true of, of institutional investors too. I know I'm focusing on independent investors, but sure. I think even, you know, the best VCs that I know, they live for that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They live for that. I mean, you know, of course they want to make money and they want carry and they want, and they want the recognition and all of those things. And they're, you know, and they're, and there's, you know, an element of vulture capital, you know, when it comes time to sharpening pencils and <laughs> writing the term sheets, you know, <laughs> it gets very, very binary, but, but at the end of the day, I think one of the reasons why they get up every day, once all that stuff is done, you know, is they become passionate about their businesses. I've been on boards where there are institutional investors involved, and, and I'm continually surprised about how the right type of institutional investor is often more enthusiastic about the business than the CEO or the co-founders who might be having a bad day because they're like, <laughs> oh, my God, you know, I've got the weight of the world on my shoulders. And, and it's those investors that, that, re, that are there to remind you, uh, guys, this is going to be incredible. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I so believe in this and I believe in you. And they're not just saying that because. They're thinking, boy, if I don't get these guys off the bench and out on the field, you know, <laughs> I'm going to lose money. I mean, they they love it. They yeah. love what they do. So I think that that's something I've learned, too, is be put myself in those environments where I'm going to love it. Yeah. Sure. That makes sense. And as far as the Boulder Heavy Industries, which, by the way, where does that name come from? Oh, that's a great story. So even well before we decided to create a platform business, one for diversification and two, because, you know, 45 year old Adam really wanted to be able to do some new things and sure. not just be doing the same thing for 10 years, right? It's part of that process that we were talking about before. But even before that, we, for tax reasons, we needed a, a, a an LLC holding company because we had a couple of different divisions that we were flowing revenue through. And, and so, you know, we had to create an entity and it was tax filing time. And I happened to be in Tokyo on a family vacation visiting Japan. And I got a call from our attorney and one of our accountants. And they said, hey, you know what? It's almost tax filing time. We need to create this entity and we need you to tell us what to name it. It can be anything you want. It can be ABC123 LLC. It can be anything you want. No one's ever going to see the name. It's just going to be on a tax return and, and in some legal filings. And I'm like, okay, fine. Like, but you got to tell us right now because you're on vacation and we've got a deadline. And like, okay. And so I'm in downtown Tokyo and I'm looking around and I see this really tall building and it said Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. <laughs> and I looked around and I'm like, okay. And I, and, I, and I pick up the phone and I say, Boulder Heavy Industries. <laughs> and I say, come again. And I said, yeah, you know, just like Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, except that we don't pollute. Just as we pollute <laughs> your mind with advertising, but we don't, we don't pollute the environment, right? That's great. And, and they said, great. And so we did that and I forgot about it. And then when, you know, some years later, when we started the platform business, they said, oh, we need to create an entity that's a holding company. I said, but we already have one, Boulder Heavy Industries. And people said, you want to call it Boulder Heavy Industries? And I said, well, let's ask around. So we asked some PR folks. We asked some of the executives. And you know what? No one else could come up with a better name at the time. And no one else really, really had, you know, such strong objections to the name. So we kept it. And, you know, it's not a perfect name. And people always ask, well, why is it called that? But, you know, I thought it's kind of an amusing story. and so. We kept the name. And the other thing I'll say about a name is one of the things I learned in the apparel business during our brief foray into smart casual dot bomb in the apparel industry <laughs> in New York is that, you know, a brand really is a reflection of the energy and the investment behind it and what people project onto it after time with engaging with it. Mm. Right. It's not the name. Right. And there's some great names. Right. You know, Verizon is a great name and they spend a million dollars on a naming agency to help them come up with that name. Viagra. 
you know, is, is a great name. And they spent millions of dollars on an ad naming agency to come up with that name. And they did focus groups and all of these things. But one of the strongest brands in the world is simply based on someone's style, taste, and conviction. And it's Ralph Lauren, mm-hmm. right? And so, so much so that there's a woman's perfume called Ralph <laughs> that women put on and feel better about themselves after they put it on and they feel better about themselves buying it. But it's called Ralph, right? And if I came to you and I pitched you and I said, hey, Michael, I'm launching this perfume, this new fashion company for women. It's called Ralph. You'd be like, you know, I'm not an expert, Adam, but I don't know if that's such a good idea. So yeah. anyways, long, long story short, I think that, and this, you know, that Boulder Heavy Industries or, you know, ABC 123 LLC, that in, at the end of the day, a name is what you make it, right? It's not, it's the value that you put into it and that other people project onto it. It's yeah. not necessarily, and there are better names than others, right? But, you know, what's in a name? Yeah, I love that insight. <laughs> so free marketing for, uh, for the listeners, right? Perfect. And the, the companies that you launch through Boulder Heavy Industries or invest in through Boulder Heavy Industries, everything's in digital media and advertising. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I have a like a personal investing portfolio as a, as a private investor, and I put a lot of money into, into other startups and growth stage companies and, and have participated on boards or advisory boards outside of Boulder Heavy Industries. And those tend to be more diverse, right? They then tend to be tend to be more aligned with my personal interests or their purely financial investments and in like real estate or other other passive things. And like your business would fall into that, sure. right, fall into that category. But the uh, Boulder Heavy Industries is really an ecosystem that's tied together with a focus on related technologies. And a lot of the businesses end up either working together or even having you know economic exchanges, intercompany economic exchanges. And we didn't design it that on purpose. But what we really wanted to do was to be able to leverage a lot of the infrastructure and institutional knowledge in an industry band that we occupy so that any business that we either formed or acquired or invested in would really benefit from all of that. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. It's a great model. Yeah, I'd love to switch gears a minute and just ask you one of the, the things that, that struck me as uh, you were taking, through the, the, taking us through the progression of your career is the role that that relationships have played in your evolution and your learning process. You had a couple of really close friends that were seemingly the the catalyst for getting into uh, your first mm-hmm. uh, entrepreneurial venture. You had similarly a, a close friend that helped you start IMM. And it sounds like you have had a, a spouse that's been very supportive as you've mm-hmm. navigated these trials and tribulations and, and you know, probably uh, uh, addressed some hard stuff and, and had to go, as you said, lick your wounds uh, going back to um, the satellite and, and television mm-hmm. world. What role do you think relationships have, have really played in that in that progress and in your success? And, and how do you think about nurturing those in, in partnerships, whether they're, you know, personal or, or professional? It's uh, a really broad question. Well, I'll talk about the, uh, the personal first and then maybe the professional. So please keep me honest. And if I don't, if I don't get to the professional, make sure we get there. On a personal level, I think it's so important to cultivate a cheering section, right? And some of that happens organically, right? Your parents, your friends, your teachers, you know, well, for the most part, human nature is we want our loved ones to succeed and be happy. And particularly, you know, family lives vicariously through family and particularly parents live vicariously through children. Right. And we feel our children's ups and downs and we project our own our own success or aspirations onto them 
whether they like it or not. (laughs) 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 And whether it's said or unsaid, right? And so I think that I've always valued and really, really felt the support and encouragement of my family. Even if, you know, I've had some taciturn relatives that, you know, that I, you know, I know they're proud and they've been very kind and supportive, but, you know, they're, they're not from the expressive side of the family. They don't, they don't say, oh, I'm so proud of you, or it's amazing, you know, but you you feel, you know, you still feel it. And that's true in anyone's family because everyone's different. But, um, but I think having a cheering section is so important, you know, whether that's, you know, materially, because they say, oh, I want to contribute, you know, I want friends and family around, you know, I'm here for you, or it's uh, emotionally, I'm so proud of you, or this is great, what a great adventure, you know, and, and, or spiritually, where, you know, you know, that you feel that they want you to be successful, right? You feel like you've got support. And, and I think it's vital, because, you know, as an entrepreneur, we, we have so many moments of self doubt, right? And knowing that we have people who not only want us to succeed, but are there for us no matter what, it's so important. And I think that's true in, in spouses. I've been really lucky to have a wife who has, you know, given me so much unconditional love over the years. And, you know, that's not, it's not to say that, you know, she hasn't set boundaries and, and that we haven't gotten to bad places over, you know, over my stress level or anxiety level or, or bringing work home. Or, you know, I, at one point I realized that my commute was too short. Right. <laughs> no one wants CEO dad right? <laughs> showing up. But, you know, one point I had a five minute commute. That's not good. Yeah. <laughs> you create the space. Right. So but I've been you know, really, really fortunate to have to have someone who at the end of the day just wanted me to be happy. Right. Yeah. And that is probably more valuable than anything else in life, because, you know, I think if you have friends and family who have an agenda, and they want you to be something because of what they want or, or what they need, you know, that's always going to color the relationship and whether it's a business partnership or a personal relationship. And I think I've really, for the most part in my personal relationships have been fortunate enough to have people who just wanted me to be happy. Sure. Right. And so much so that when they saw that what I was doing, which uh, superficially appeared to be pursuing my dreams, you know, really wasn't anymore. Yeah. They weren't afraid to say that. That's powerful. So it's really powerful. On the business side, I will tell you, I've had a number of business partners over the years. And I've had I've had a varied experience with that. And I'm not saying that to be cryptic and just trying to be accurate. Sure. I've had incredible success and wonderfully celebratory moments where, you know, I the relationship was so wonderful. And I've almost ended up in litigation. <laughs> and so what I will say about going into business with friends is that it's an incredible accelerant or family for that matter, because, you know, some of the people I went into business with, I would consider, I would consider brothers and sisters in terms of my lifelong bond, you know, and and with them and my history with them. So, but from before we started to work together, right. Sure. And because that could be high school friends, college friends, business school friends, you know, all of those, all those things or actual relatives. And I will say that it is an incredible accelerant at the early stages, right? Because the level of trust that exists, the desire not to let, combined with a desire not to let someone down, <laughs> right? And combined with an ability to resolve disputes, because if you've been friends long enough, most likely you've already had to have the experience of resolving disputes. So that, that emotional shorthand, the ability, the, the existing trust, 
and the loyalty and desire and not wanting to let someone down, those three things can be incredibly powerful, right? Because otherwise, if it's just a bunch of co-founders that come together with complementary skills that have been match made by who knows whom, you're spending a lot of the early stage of the business learning about each other sure. and, and creating a dynamic. So I have found that to be an incredible accelerant in the early stages. But it also presents challenges because I like to joke that if you go into business with all your friends, you won't have any more friends uh, <laughs> because it transforms the friendship. Sure. And, you know, you become economically dependent on each other. Oftentimes there's hierarchy, right? Yeah. I've had business partnerships with friends where there is a, there's a titular hierarchy, uh, even if the equity is even. Uh, one of the things I've always tried to do to prevent the friendship from deteriorating excessively due to a titular hierarchy in a partnership is to make sure that everyone has the same amount of equity, even if they have different titles. Interesting. Right? Yeah. But that doesn't always work either because people's contributions are different. And that can, even that equity parity can create resentment, right? Is that person worth, you know, a, an equal share of the business? <laughs> uh, and then that creates resentment. So there are all, there are all sorts of, of pitfalls there. And so, you know, the second thing I would say is that, you know, if you go into business with all your friends, you might need to go make some new friends because it transforms the relationship. And then the other piece of it is, is that it's like a marriage in, in many respects because of that relationship that exists outside of the business environment, that if your partners are also your, your prior friends, then you have to invest in, certainly I had to invest in maintaining that relationship and, and, and developing communication, right? You know, couples in crisis go to couples therapy. What do friends who are business partners do or relatives that are business partners do in those situations, right? And so, you know, those are real considerations. But I would say on the whole, my experience, my experience has been positive. It has been a key to my success, but it has not been without periods of anxiety, heartache, sadness, breakup, you know, so I guess kind of like life. Yeah. And, but I think in general, I have had more success with having friends as partners than, than not. And, but, you know, I think now I will transition and say that I now have partners in my business. Um, I'm currently not working with anyone who was previously a friend. Okay. Um, and I now have a partners in my business who are people that have chosen to work with me and I've chosen to work with them. And the, one of the things that I like most about it is that we're both proactively making that choice every day, right? It's not like, you know, we have this relationship that is, is going to, was existed before and is going to exist after. And so there's some sense of obligation, right? It's, it's an at will friendship. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and it creates this open, an honest dialogue where, you know, I get to be curious about them and they get to be curious about me and we get to say, Hey, this is working for me and it's not, and, or this is not. And so it's kind of lowered the emotional temperature. It's not to say that there are moments of stress mm -hmm. or disagreement, but there's a lot more discovery and there's less emotional overhead. So, you know, it, different strokes for different folks. I know people that won't ever go into business with their friends. Mm. Right. And sure. I know people that are afraid to go into business with anyone other than their friends. Yeah, that's great. I'd love to ask you circling uh, back around to today and, and uh, some of the challenges that, that you faced. We talked not too long ago about COVID and what it's like to respond to a, a global pandemic. And it's something that everyone yeah. is dealing with right now. And a lot of businesses out there have been 
hamstrung or, or have had been forced to shut down. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of other businesses right now that are having record quarters and, and an extraordinary amount of success. I would love to hear how you encountered COVID in your business at first, what that experience was like and, and how navigating that has been and maybe how you've, you've used some of the lessons you've learned to do that. Mm. Great question. Well, the summary of our COVID experience has been all's well that ends well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but if you'd asked me this question in mid-March at the beginning of the lockdown and when the stock market began to teeter and then when it cratered, you know, I would have said to you, I don't know if we're going to have a business, yeah. right? And fast forward to today where our business has grown, uh, our collectively, Boulder Heavy Industries has grown by 30% and during 2020. And in terms of both revenue and headcount, and we have open positions, we're hiring, in case anyone's listening, <laughs> and we're hiring a lot of remote people. So if you don't live in Colorado, that's cool too. Awesome. It's like I'm plugging my book on yeah, the show. Or go something. plug away. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we have you know, another open positions that reflect another 25% growth. So we've definitely seesawed in, in a pretty incredible way. And I'll give you the, the arc, right? So beginning in mid-March, the stock market crashed. And I sat my wife down and I said, I don't know if we're going to have a business because wow. our family liquidity was equally constrained by the dips in the stock market and even the bond market. And so, you know, if I had to keep Boulder Heavy Industries afloat because, you know, all of its advertising revenues evaporated because all of the clients pulled back their budget, which is what was happening at that for those two or three weeks where... Yeah. You know, everyone thought that all of their businesses were going to be cash constrained and, and the equity markets weren't going to be available to them and the bond market was going to be available, available to them. I wouldn't be able to do that because I was equally constrained, right, yeah. through, the public, through the contraction of the public markets. And so and it's not like I could sell all my private investments, you know, yeah. uh, so, you know, there was no liquidity there either. And so I was literally felt like I was in free fall for a few weeks, you know, people pulling advertising budgets thinking about, you know, how many people, it's not if we were going to lay off people, it's how many people do we have to lay off, wow. right? And so if you were to plot the arc of our, of our consolidated, you know, portfolio company story against the stock market or against the stock price graph for Amazon, it would look similar, mm. right? It, it, would, it would appear similar. We, we went off a cliff, right? <laughs> like the market. And then, you know, we took in PPP, which really was helpful. We were one of the businesses that really benefited from PPP because, you know, we had, we had advertisers who were cruise lines, hotels, you know, call centers yeah. that had to shut down because of COVID, you know, the state farm call insurance call center shut down. I mean, all of these real life problems that were totally beyond our control, wow. you know, restaurant chains that were shuttered. So it all trickled down. And because if your store isn't open, are you going to run ads? <laughs> not. not. And so the PPP came at a at the right time. We were one of those businesses that really were able to benefit from it for the right reasons. Sure. And then something really incredible happened. Our industry, you know, not to the extent of a Zoom or an Amazon or or a manufacturer or PPP or you know a PPE rather personal protective equipment. You know, not to the extent of one of those one of those types of businesses, but to a much greater degree than most of the other industries in the economy. We we began to be a focus. For economic activity because everyone was at home and everyone was on their screens and you couldn't advertise to someone in a car. You couldn't advertise to someone in a magazine. And, you know, people were mostly consuming media through digital means, not through linear television, you know, old broadcast television. And so go from 
not sure if we're going to have a business at the end of March to June being our best June almost ever. Wow. Right. So like a V actually like a, you know, more like a V, but with a hot, much higher peak on the, <laughs> on the, on the other side of the V and that growth has continued. And so one of our business units has grown nine X wow. nine times. And just to give you some example. And so, but on a personal level, I still have PTSD because I had three weeks yeah. of sleepless nights. So, you know, my car had a flat tire the other day and I thought the world was going to end. Yeah. Right. And, and I had to catch myself and say, it's just a flat tire, but it's remarkable how, how those, those experiences get metabolized. Right. Mm. And so you asked me the other part of your question was how did I manage through it? Right. Well, you know, we were having, you know, daily, I mean, we were, I was my, I was on zoom for 12 hours a day. Right. Yeah. And through the peak of the crisis. And then, and then we were having, you know, constant Zoom conversations with increasingly larger teams. And what I found is the only way that I could function and not break is to be super emotionally vulnerable with mm -hmm. my team and start making a lot more I statements. I'm afraid, I'm concerned, or, you know, or so that, so that they felt like they were heard, right? So they could, they knew that I was empathizing with their fear. Yeah. And then, and as that moved to growth and recovery and optimism, it's, you know, I believe I'm excited. I know uh, we can do this. And what I found was, is that I, it also helped me rediscover, you know, some of the entrepreneurial passion that maybe I had kind of subjugated to being an operator of a larger portfolio company. And so I became the virtual entrepreneur, you know, just like I'm talking to you on Zoom, yeah. you know, I was evangelizing vision and mission. Now it always helps when you have growth behind you sure. to support that, but I returned to really being the role of the evangelist and spread optimism to, to my group and to, and to the people that we were doing business with, right? So ironically, I, my wife likes to joke that, you know, because of epigenetics or, or my family history as, as, as survivors, that part of me has always been a crisis manager looking for a crisis. <laughs> and so I'm uniquely calm in a, in a crisis. Apparently, I don't know if this is true or not, but apparently when I was three years old, uh, my babysitter got really sick and, and passed out on the floor and I called the ambulance. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, so I don't know if that's true. My mother likes to tell that story. So at any rate, you know, it was like the world's level of anxiety to risen to my normal level. And so <laughs> I felt incredibly calm and I was able to be positive and optimistic. Yeah. For which I'm grateful because it, it really helped me give that to the team in a time of need. That's great. So well, yeah. you spend much of your life training that to a certain extent, it seems. Uh, maybe. I don't know if I was training for it, but I guess I was just able to, I was grateful that I was able to be present and accept, you know, accept what the worst case could be and embrace what was possible mm -hmm. and not dwell and not dwell on, on the bad things that might happen. Yeah. So speaking of sort of embracing the possible, and as I say this, you know, thank you so much for, for spending so much time with us, but uh, would love to understand, you know, what's your advice for entrepreneurs who are going through a, a rough time? Or maybe they're they're starting out and they're a little they're trepidatious around uh, what the future might hold. Do you have advice or recommendations for how to jump in and, and how to embrace the hard stuff? Great question. <clears throat> well, I think one of the things that I have come to believe is that experience sharing is much more helpful and healthy than advice giving. Mm. And maybe that's because I come from a Jewish family and if you know, and if you start coughing, you know, the 10, 10 people around you start telling you, 
you know, what you should be doing, you know, and, and you have a nebulizer and, you know, and have you seen this doctor? So, you know, maybe, maybe part of that is just, uh, you know, my own, uh, my own experience, but joking aside, personally, when someone, when I say to someone, ah, you know, I'm struggling with this issue and they say, you know what that brings up for me? This is something that happened to me and I relate and here's how I experienced it. And here's, here's my story of how I dealt with it for better or, or for worse. A couple of things happen. You know, one, I feel a great degree of empathy and feeling not alone, especially when you're, when you're an entrepreneur is so important, right? Feeling, feeling supported gives you energy to be able to support your business and other people. So I think finding people that can share experience versus give you advice is so vital. You know, lonely at the top. And, yeah. and I think that's so important. And so I, in general, don't like to give advice anymore. I like to share experience and say, you know what you're asking, you know what that brings up for me is this time that that happened to me and here's how I did it. And it's funny because another way that I got to that is when I was during my brief interlude, when I was writing, writing screenplays for a living, I found that the quietest place to do it wasn't in an office. It wasn't at home, no phone ringing, no nothing, no distractions. It was in the quietest section of the library, which turned out to be, you know, the place where nobody went because no one was interested in those books. It was the biography <laughs> section. Oh, wow. And so during my breaks where I got to stretch my legs from writing, I would just walk up and down the aisles and there were all these stories of all these people. And I would pull out a book, open the book, you know, to a random place and read about someone's life story. And I never see, I was always inspired. I was always inspired, Right. And it was always energy giving and it was always educational. And so I don't like reading self-help books or, and they're great. And I know it's probably my loss because there's some great methodologies and great ways to approach life and problems, but I love reading people's stories yeah. and stories of how they dealt with adversity and stories of how they succeeded and everything in between. And I find like, that's where I learn the most. So if I'm going to give any advice, it's seek out people who can share relevant experience, yeah. not who are going to give you advice. It's so um, funny you say that. I mean, that's really the the inspiration for me wanting to do a podcast. You know, it's yeah, uh, yeah. going through the hard stuff, asking folks for advice, but then getting experiences instead, and then and then the realization of, oh wow, you're you're not alone navigating a scenario like that. Actually, a bunch of these other people that you look up to or, or idolize or you know spend time with are, are actually navigating or have navigated very similar paths. Totally. I belong to this professional development organization called YPO, right? Yep. I'm sure you're familiar. And during the dark days of COVID, when I didn't know if I was going to have a business, the group organized an experience share from a bunch of men and women who had been investors, business people, entrepreneurs, and were now retired. They were in their 80s. And it was all an experience share about the times in their lives that where they thought their business was coming to an end, either because of circumstances outside of their control, macroeconomic factors. You know, we had someone talking about how they almost lost their business in the Arab oil embargo. And he was yeah. like, you know, son, you think COVID is bad? Let me tell you about the Arab oil embargo. <laughs> <laughs> That's and, great. And I think it's really through those moments that one, it gives us the confidence to see that, okay, you know what? Uh, if they can get through that, so can I, that I'm not alone. And Sometimes you also get some tactics for, for how to handle things that you can apply. So I'm, I'm a big believer in finding people who can share experience. So number one. Number two, I feel like doing the what's the worst that can happen calculus. I'm mm -hmm. a huge believer in that. I've done that many times, you know, where because, you know, I'm telling you, you know, a story in, in, in broad brushstrokes, but there have been 
half a dozen or more, maybe even a dozen moments along the way in my career where maybe even more than a dozen where I didn't know if it was something was going to work or if it was going to work out or, you know, we were going to have a company or I was going to have a job or whatever it was. And one of the ways that I navigated that, I think, in a way that was healthy for me and ultimately helped me be successful is to sit down literally and say, okay, what is the absolute worst that's going to happen? And then do a bottoms up calculation from there. We're going to have to lay off this many people. This is what our finances are going to look like. And then I would inhabit that. I would say, how's that going to feel? You know, well, how am I going to wake up the next day and how am I going to feel the next day? And then what's going to happen? And, you know, and what would happen after that? And almost like, you know, visualize, you know, those things, not so that, you know, you, you have a nervous breakdown, but so that what you realize is, is that we're totally resilient as human beings. Yeah. And once you can fully inhabit that, you realize it. it's never as bad as you think it's going to be. Right. <laughs> and by actually going to that place of total loss, it removes the one thing for me that I think has always been something that can hold me back. And once I'm free of it, I always do better. And that is approaching something as if I have nothing to lose, mm. right? I have been in so many situations where if I'm the one, people can smell it a mile away. Mm -hmm. They can smell into, it's like, you know, they, they say that like reptiles can smell fear, right? I think that, that that still exists in our, in our genetic makeup. And I think, you know, people love to say everyone loves a winner, right? And, and, and it's contagious. And there's some element to that. And even if you were in a crisis situation where there the risk of loss is significant, if you can let go of that loss and play like you've got nothing to lose, yeah, I think for me, that's been key to my success in coming out of a crisis. Love that. So I, you know, I would offer those, I would offer those two things. And oh, one other thing is don't take, you know, I don't take myself too fucking seriously. When our <laughs> startup was about to fail one afternoon and we knew and we weren't sure, you know, there was still a glimmer of hope and we were hanging on, but it wasn't looking good. You know, we stopped and said, let's go out and play hooky because one day isn't going to make a huge difference yeah. in the outcome of our business. Right. So let's go have a three martini lunch and go watch a matinee of some mindless action movie. <laughs> right. And then go walk around. This is in Manhattan and go, you know, go walk around the city and, you know, or get on the Staten Island ferry or go around just, you know, let's just go out and just be human and real again and breathe and remind ourselves that, that life is good no matter what. Yeah. And that is a hard thing to do. And that's when sometimes having good friends and good partners makes a huge difference. Because that would be someone, you know, in my case, it was someone's like, let's go, you know, I'm taking you out and I'm getting you drunk. You know, and there's nothing you can say about it. I'm fucking doing it. Yeah. Right. Because you need a drink. Yeah. Right. Or the moral equivalent of that. if you don't <laughs> That's great. Life is good no matter what. That's as good a note to come to an end of just a, a yeah. phenomenal story as any. Adam, this has been deeply appreciated. Thank you so much for, for playing in this medium with me. Question as we wrap up here, if people want to reach out, if they're interested in getting hired at, at Boulder Heavy Industries, what's the best way to do that? Oh, a great question. You can find us on all of the roles we have posted on LinkedIn, the Boulder Heavy Industries LinkedIn page. You can also find us at boulderheavyindustries.com, boulderheavyindustries.com, one long the world's longest URL. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, Adam, thank yeah. you. I wish you lots of continued success and looking forward to chatting again soon. Thank you, sir. Same. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hi, it's Michael again. Thanks for listening to this installment of What Didn't Kill You. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to share with friends, subscribe, and review. 
You can continue the conversation and share your own stories of what didn't kill you at whatdidn'tkillyou.com. And you can follow along at what didn't kill you on Instagram. I wish you great fortune, growth, and clarity as you navigate your own path. And I hope today's conversation may have contributed in some small way. See you next time.